seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. Normally, for an episode like this, I'd write a little wizardly intro talking about today's topic simulation theory. I'd give you a history of the concept, pepper with my own opinions, and then tell you about our guest, Nathan Dufour Oglesby, who performs under the name Nathanology. But here's the thing. The reason I invited Nathan to join our ritual for this little chat is because he just released an incredible educational rap video for his song, Living in a Simulation. And that song does all of that. It not only explains simulation theory in clear, more relatable terms than I've ever heard, but does so in immaculate, intricate rhymes. So, rather than waste your time and mine by creating a meager simulacrum of Nathan's erudite exposition, I'm just going to play Nathan's whole track for you. So here it is, Living in a Simulation. look around and contemplate the terrifying mystery of it all? No, 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 it's cool, it's on me. Just like the fact that it exists, you know? You smoke? No. Uh, but what if, like, there's more, you know? I mean, I'm not trying to sound crazy, but like, what if this isn't real? What if this is a simulation? You ever ask yourself if this is actually it? As you grab another snack, pack another hit? This accidental mashup of your atoms and shit that manifest and vanish at the flash of a click. Don't you feel that it's a bit, have a seat, how to say it, as if it isn't real. This whole situation is less like life and more like information. Do you feel like you're in a simulation? Existence is nar, but what if what you are is just a bar of written code, a code at a bar? A well-regarded author out at Oxford has argued that all this is software, but don't take it hard. Cause given what our artifice can already do, and its exponential progress, it is probable superhuman humans went and frickin' simulated you, dude. For one of the following is logically true. Either A, a civilization with enough sophistication that could make our simulation never makes it cause it caves in. Or B, those civilizations that could make us may be, they don't make sims cause they find it inhumane to deceive. But seeing as we tend to flex and say F it, let's just make the next invention then we'll question the ethics. It may be that C is the credible premise. We're simulations that someone else edits. Am I in a simulation? Is it really fair? And if it is a simulation, is it really okay? Will it change the situation? Is an everyday a datum and we made it? Of information, you getting what I'm saying? Shit, bro, is it so? All of my feelings and all of my soul, all the phenomena's ripple and flow. Nothing but copies are written in code. Yo, at least they let us live, although they misled us. We're all just Tamagotchis on a demigod's necklace. We got internet and Netflix. We're objects on a screen watching screens, and we contemplate what all of it means. And it seems that what we are when watching vids on our cell are forms of entertainment entertaining themselves. Oh well. What if we're not meant to know? And acknowledging the play may just stop the whole show. Oh. And if nothing is real, 
The apple of knowledge may not have appeal. But then if I am a bug in a tent, an image is something and nothing but sim. Created by some other brilliant men. Well, what if there's someone to simulate them? If I've been created, then whoever made it could maybe be made by a way greater agent and so on. An infinite creator and greater were all simulations on all simulators. Well, then my little simulated friend, that's an infinite regress. Unless there's something at the end, a dissenter and beginning and ever blessed it's ever been. A presence at the essence. Amen. But if all that is isn't, or is, but is all just autonomous figments, fixed algorithms, and infinite ribbons of code, well then so, what's the difference? For if it's illusion, pixel and frame, it may still be goodwill that will win us the game. And if knowing it's not reals with glitches and ends it, we'll end it all literally interconnected. Okay. So if it is a simulation, then we can still live in relation Cash is in a data set or atoms in arrangement Even if it's made up, it may still be what you make it And there you have it. Wow. Really good stuff, and I'm so enamored with our conversation that dives deep into all the fascinating nooks and crannies of the intricate ideas Nathan so beautifully laid out for us. But before we do that, I can't help but editorialize with two personal points. The first is that this episode has been a long time coming. Nathan and I moved through similar circles when I was back in Bushwick, but our parallel lines never intersected. Since leaving New York, I've followed Nathan's work via his YouTube channel, Nathanology, and the highlights he shares to his Instagram under the handle at Nathanology underscore. And as amazing as that track is, the videos Nathan creates are unbelievable. So I encourage you to go watch that video for Living in a Simulation. The other little tidbit I want to tease at the top is, after Nathan and I finished our conversation, we realized we hadn't even discussed the power of rhyme. And so Nathan promptly busted out a freestyle all about this podcast as a ritual and the wonderful wizardry we work here. So stay tuned all the way to the tail end of this episode to catch that tasty little treat in which you will not only hear Nathan rap, but your favorite wizard spits a couple verses too. All right. Now, whether or not reality is really real, whatever that means, we've got to get through this strange experience with grace and good vibes. So without further ado, let's jump into our ritual with both feet as Nathan, Nathanology, teaches us how to survive in a simulation. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Devin. Got a really weird question for you. Ask me the question. Is this conversation real? Yes. You and I are talking, even though we're not in a shared physical location, but we're having a conversation in real time. When I am confronted with complexities of this kind, of the kind that that question presents, I tend to lean on etymologies. Etymologies are the true stories behind words, the origins of words. And real just means having the quality of being a thing. The re part is from the Latin res, which means thing. So this has a thinginess about it to me. I feel like this is a thing. I'm experiencing it. I can't with any certifiable, confirmable completeness say that you are experiencing it. But a thing is happening. Something's going down. So I would say so. Real enough for me. All right. We're in a thing. That's good enough for me. (laughs) Now, what's our magic word going to be? How about care? Care? Oh, I like it. All right. On the count of three. One, two, three. Care. Care. Now, why care? 
I was, a big question. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. I was having a discussion earlier today with, client isn't quite the right word, but somebody who has invested in a project that I'm working on, or somebody who represents a company uh, that has invested in a project that I'm working on. And it's a song about taking direct ecological action, changing your mm. behaviors in such a way to bring yourself more into ecological holism with your surroundings by doing simple things like composting or bringing a reusable cup when you go to the coffee shop mm -hmm. or what have you, things like this. Things that are cumulative material actions that don't require electing the right representative to get the law passed or whatever, but are just yeah. your own agency. And the song uh, is not done because it's a long song and I'd sent it to him and to the other folks and a lot of it is resonating, but mostly the parts where I'm exploring why it's difficult to want to do that and why it's difficult for people to do that. But the parts where I'm actually talking about doing it weren't resonating as much. And we were exploring in this conversation, like, what is the reason? And then I was going deep into my own behavior in life and realizing that at the contact point where it actually, where talk becomes action and uh, ideas become material in my actual behavior, that that's a, a gap for me sometimes where I'm a little estranged from myself. It's really easy to make content about things, to talk about things, to philosophize about things, but then mm -hmm. the transmutation into action is challenging. That's precisely the point of recalcitrance in this life of ours. So the theme word that he gave me was care. He said, take today, stop working on the project because I was a little stymied and I was feeling a little frustrated and I'm already over this deadline by a long shot. And he's a very sensible guy. His name's Jeremy, Jeremy Lubman. And he was like, today, just care, just care for others and for other things. Turn the beam of your thought outward and don't think about the song or trying to complete it. So that's why it's on my mind. That makes sense. That's a long answer, but yeah. That's a great answer though. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I was talking with my therapist and she gave me advice yesterday that was basically the essence of the advice that I'm giving in the book I'm writing. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is stuff that I'm familiar with. It's just... Uh, it's easy even when you spend all your time talking and thinking about something yep. to um, have that gap, like you said so well, between the doing. And I think there's a difference between that and hypocrisy mm -hmm. and, and being fake, but just realizing that there's that different layer. Yeah, well, there's almost like a risk that the speaker runs. Those who have the gift or the calling to articulate uh, the essence of something are going out on a limb and they're actually going a, on a journey away from the thing because there's an right. intuitive understanding. I mean, like there's that line in, there's a story about Lao Tzu that he was like leaving the kingdom to like go to the beyond or whatever. And somebody at some checkpoint was like, you got to write down your philosophy before you go if you're really leaving us. And so then he wrote the Tao Te Ching, you know, and, and in in it, there's the line that he says something about, those who know don't say, and those who say don't know. Mm -hmm. But I think insofar as one is a sayer by trade, you're constantly doing these loops out of knowing and then back into it. And because you have to show people the outside of the unsayable truth to point to the unsayable truth. But that involves you going on a kind of perilous journey out of it. Speech is an action of a kind that involves a sort of self-estrangement and... So it's perilous, you know? And then if you make it your stock and trade to talk about things all the time, you know, you're, it, it's, it's, I don't know, there's, there's a risk involved because the more you hear yourself say it, it starts to lose some of its sacred uh, 
tangibility, you know, and becomes this abstract thing. Absolutely. I think about that a lot with the commentary that I try and do about social media. And it's like, well, where am I going to put this commentary if not on social media? Mm. And so how do you balance uh, (laughs) putting the warning and the information where people need it versus the weirdness of saying, hey, I'm here to tell you to log off. Yeah, 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 (laughs) totally, totally. But um, let's let's talk about layers of reality. Um, I was so blown away by this recent video you did. I've liked your work for a long time. Thanks. But this one on simulation, I think, um, did a, an excellent job of taking a very complex concept and showing both the implications of it, especially with the ethics video that you followed up with, um, as well as just sort of the history of this idea and where do these things come from and how do we think about it. So uh, for somebody who's never heard about this, can you give just a quick intro, uh, shorter than the the video, which they've already heard, um, <laughs> about simulation? Yeah, sure. Simulation theory is a popular and prominent idea in modern philosophy. Uh, and there are many different variations of it. The part that I explored most directly in the recent work that I released is the version of the simulation argument, so-called, offered by a philosopher named Nick Bostrom, Mm -hmm. which is essentially that it's not demonstrably a fact 100% that we're in a computer-generated simulation, but it is likely. And the reason for this likeliness in a nutshell, I'm not going to give it in its fully formalized formalized version of the argument, but just in a sort of looser way. Mm -hmm. Um, taking as a jumping off point the acceleration acceleration with which we're beginning to simulate reality through our technologies, through virtual reality, through artificial intelligence, different forms of digital representation of reality. The way in which that's accelerating so swiftly should indicate to us that it's perfectly possible that another species or another version of us or some entity out there in the universe has already simulated us. The reason that that wouldn't be the case would need to either be that A, any civilization that could do it decides not to do it because they think it's unethical mm-hmm. or because they collapsed before they were able to. But we seem to be without those moral restraints because we're simulating stuff and creating artificial intelligences and so forth. At a rapid forth, clip, yeah. <laughs> at a rapid clip. And we don't seem to be on the verge of collapsing prior to fully accomplishing it. Rather, we seem to be closer to that actuality of being able to fully simulate worlds than collapsing in our own world. Hence, it's at least as likely, and he would argue, more likely that we are living in one. That's one version of the argument for a simulation, but that's really part of a larger tradition of, in a broader sense, suspecting that there's something about this that even though it is real in the sense that we're experiencing it, is not all that meets the eye, or rather that there's more going on here, or that there's something about our experiential reality in its sensory perspective and emotional perspective and in the way we experience it psychologically that is underlied by some more ultimate reality of which this is a projection or an echo somehow. And that's something that in the history of Western philosophy is a very prominent idea, probably most famously expounded by Plato Mm -hmm. back in the 5th to 4th centuries BCE, but comes up in many different connections. It's a a theme in a way in uh, Hinduism. Mm -hmm. It's a theme in Buddhism. It's, it's a theme across the board of world religious and philosophical traditions that something like that is going on. So I want to come back to those uh, religious ideas about this in a moment. But I think what's interesting with the technological version that we see, and I feel like I've even seen this like New York Times op-eds, but when people are saying, are we living in a computer? They kind of, it 
feels like take it very literally. They're like imagining yeah. that you zoom out and then there's a bunch of people standing around uh, a laptop and like being like, they're on yeah. the screen. Yeah. But their reality, that other reality kind of looks more or less like ours is often yeah, how yeah. it's perceived of like with a computer that looks like the computers we have. And that's always seemed very bizarre to me because if, you know, Mario becomes sentient inside of his 16-bit Super Mario World universe, there's not computers in that game. He would have to imagine a world that's made out of berries and pipes and piranha plants right. and all of that kind of stuff. And the experience that we have is so obviously alien and different from the cartoon mm -hmm. Mario world that it always seems so bizarre to me when people just take this idea and they're like, and it's a computer rather yeah. than that, I think, more philosophic idea of there's an exterior context that we are within and who knows what we can say about that other layer based on right. being inside of the the smaller game, if you will. Exactly, yeah, yeah. The temptation, or not the temptation, but it's natural that we would have a sort of Rick and Morty imagination of it. I think that also mm -hmm. makes the concept deliciously tangible and fun and poppy in a way. Yeah. But the deeper implication is, yeah, as I was saying just a moment ago, older and tied with religious insights and concepts over the history of various traditions. There's also another way to look at it, and there's another video that I did on this, or that explores this in part. Another, When you say simulation theory, a lot of people's lights will turn on and they'll think, okay, Nick Bostrom or David Chalmers is another exponent mm -hmm. of the possibility of a literal, tangible, computer-generated simulation that we are like sort of like the Sims, like the game. Right. The, but another light might turn on for different readers who are drawing from a slightly different contemporary philosophical tradition. Um, and they might think of Baudrillard. Baudrillard is a sort of sociologist philosopher and more, more from the tradition of critical theory, which examines in general the ways in which our experience is shaped by the information we encounter. And he argues that we're in a simulation in the sense that all of the contact that we have with reality is completely and totally mediated by the media with which we're inundated. We can't access it we've long since lost the ability to access the immediacy of just being because it's always in our mind secondary to a movie that we have seen and are mm -hmm. living in a way, which I think that's more and more the case and more and more relevant of an insight as we have a world that is constantly depicted by photographic reproduction. You know, you, you start to see everything as like a potential post because it is a potential post. And more and more of your time, just literally on the timeline of your life, is spent having real and genuine experience, but looking at these reflections of things. And sooner or later, those reflections become more primary in, in the order of experience, in the order of importance, mm -hmm. and order of intensity than the experiences you're having when you're not looking at that rectangle. And it starts to be that the stuff that you're looking at outside of that rectangle of your phone reminds you of stuff on the phone mm -hmm. rather than the other way around. Yeah, it's like when someone is watching a TV show and then in every conversation, they're like, oh, that reminds me of this thing in the, yeah. in the yeah, one yeah. frame of reference that I'm currently yeah. obsessed with. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's all of this idea about virtual reality with goggles. And I think that feels similar to this idea that, you know, a simulation means there's a MacBook running running mm -hmm. our reality. But you're totally right. If we look at just the percentage of time in our day, we're staring at various screens for the vast majority of it. And as we move around the little universe of our houses and neighborhoods and things like that, we're spending way more time in this 
abstracted version of information mm-hmm. that we experience. Uh, and yeah, don't think about, oh, like I'm texting a friend. That's a virtual conversation. Right. Oh, I'm watching a movie. This is a dissociated, hallucinatory <laughs> narrative experience that I'm going into. Yep, exactly. And I think that idea of the physicality is interesting too, because you know, if I have a regular box and I'm in a room, I can look inside the box and there's a volume of space and it's finite and there's things that are in the box or out of the box and it's pretty clear. But if I'm in a room and I have a computer, the idea of what's in that computer is really hard for us to make sense of because on some sense, there's a hard drive, there's data written into mm-hmm. it, but then that can change and evolve. And if it's connected to the internet, then there's contents that are constantly flowing in and out. And I've always thought about that with the simulation theory of what is the point where the insides of things become bigger than the outsides, where the computer mm. is able to create a representation of the universe that is more nuanced and detailed than the real one. Like, you know, that in which it physically sits. Yeah. Right? That like, in which it sits with reference to its own layer. If Grand Theft Auto 10 has a Los Angeles that's bigger than the real Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. 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 That is a fascinating idea. There is a book by the guy David Chalmers that I mentioned earlier. Are you familiar with David Chalmers? You've written Chalmers. I'm trying before? to think. Like, um, is he the object oriented on top? Uh, no, no. That's uh, Graham something. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I love object-oriented ontology. We could definitely talk about that. Uh, but um, Chalmers, he has a book. Well, he's got a couple books, but one that came out recently, which is kind of for, like it's a popular approach or a popularly accessible approach to all these problems. Although he's a very legit academic philosopher called Reality Plus. And there's a section right, in yeah, it that yeah. I, I'm eager to reread because... Oh, Chalmers it, is the um, the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah. He has a section in there about information. What is information? How do we conceive of information? Because on a certain level of analysis, everything is matter, even if it seems immaterial. Like all of the different things that are displaying you you to me are pixels. And those pixels correspond to actual like, you know, little lightable physical nodes that are just very tiny. And all Mm -hmm. of the processing that all of the information stored on my computer is inscribed in a tiny, tiny, tiny way. But that's not hard for me to think about. It's just the same thing as, uh, even if it's stored um, in terms of like electrical activations with the way that a circuit works, mm-hmm. it's still physical, just as physical in my imagination and understanding as the grooves cut into a wax record. You know what I right. mean? And so I can still tangibly understand it. But information may not be exhausted by that. You know, the, the concept of what information is, is information maybe in some way analogous to experience in the sense that, you know, it's with reference to something. Information implies a subject that that information is intended for and an object about which that information is or to which that information pertains. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like this residue on the physicality of things. And that's not a very adequate introduction to the interesting problem of this, but I've been, I've been preoccupied by that recently, you know, there, there is, there's another like little branch of philosophy and I'm forgetting the folks associated with it that talk about how in a way everything is information or rather the, the world is like, universal information, which is another sort of way of conceptualizing the simulation thing. And then everything is information then for some implied observer, you know, which once again gets us quickly into like mystical territory of information for whom or who's enjoying and manipulating and creating that information, you know, or that that's that one, you know, the one unitary subject of it all. 
Well, I think that concept of the way that you phrased that of, you know, it's like information as a residue that accumulates on physical matter is fascinating and kind of open up the inverse of what we were just talking about with the box that has more in it than mm-hmm. the outside, where there are cultural objects where the commentary is so much more than the thing in and of itself. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, Plato's story about a cave is a certain amount of text originally mm-hmm. written in Greek, and that is finite. There's that mm-hmm. much of it. But the amount of philosophy and translations and everything that has accumulated to comment on that is is now vastly greater. And so how much information does a single object contain um, if we were to try and, you know, think about it and dissect it, an apple. You know, you could look at the cells and the chemistry yeah. of it. You could think about the symbolism. You could connect it to other things. It just goes and goes and it's just a That's, physical apple. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's interesting to think too along those lines about the different ways the word is used. There's, an, there's a section in Baudrillard's book um, from which is in, in reference to the stuff we were talking about just a little bit ago uh, called Simulacra and Simulation where he's talking about the original simulation is like genetic or that's one of the more primary and primitive forms of simulation because it's simulation all the way up and all the way down and the whole the whole mm-hmm. motherfucker this whole thing is that and so uh, when we talk about a cell having genetic information it's producing something it's representing something it's doing a gesture that is akin to what we do when we simulate something ourselves when we mm-hmm. portray or we create or we spin a narrative or something like that like so is the very process of like genetic replication is a gesture of simulation. It's a splitting from a more primary reality into successive layers of projection or emanation in a way. And so even though we're physical and we tend to think of that in like very tangible terms, if we are buying into the idea that our genetic contents here are uh, code being actuated, we're like, we're like the display of the code of our genes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all of our language is always metaphorical and is always relative to how we can see things at a different moment in reality. It's no, it's no accident that, or moment in history, it's no accident that we talk about genetic code in the same age that computer coding is so central to how we view the world. Of it's course, just a, yeah. a paradigm, but... Freud's uh, steam engine metaphors for the human psyche. Exactly, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, but it's interesting to think about that, that, you know, even just on a physical level, take all the computer-generated stuff out of it, we're take take even the internet discussion out of it. We are the projections of something. We're a program being run in the language of biological science. We're a program being run by coding, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> by by these little a series of commands, you know. Yeah, and so it's essentially the same idea. And then we in turn produce further commands that are the systems that we create socially and the representations that we make aesthetically, artistically, productively, you know, industrially. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of like a video game where there's the code of the video game. And then if you had a video of someone playing through the game, there's the, you know, the way that that particular instance manifests with the the choices, mm-hmm. the, how many times their character dies has to be restarted, totally. which path they take. And you and I, at some point, were, you know, a sperm and an egg. And the forks that our life have navigated sprang from that, but are also contained in that in a very strange way. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like in that in that coded egg. Yeah. Well, I think one of the other things that comes to mind with all of this is again, you know, we're talking through digital representations of physical sensory experience. I'm making vibrations, mm. they're translated by the microphone into audio, people are listening to it, which is vibrating the air near them. And so we're already used to things that are quote-unquote real but are not. So we'll say this is a real photo. 
I mean, it's a collection of mm. pixels, like you just said. Yeah. But if it was taken of a real event, we're like, that is a real photo. That was a photo that was taken Saturday night at the party. Mm-hmm. But then, especially in the last few decades, we've seen more and more layers of distortion and kind of noise of, oh, well, this is a Photoshopped photo. It's been manipulated. It's been filtered. It's been cleaned up. Yeah. And I think with artificial intelligence and the explosion we've seen of that just in the last year, we're starting to get this nervous energy around perhaps the difference between like signal and hallucination when something isn't coming from something that feels rooted in our material world, but is just emerging from this digital information. And how do we um, respond to those less real realities? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought it up and I like the way you framed it. I think I'm almost starting you you mentioned at the beginning the question about is this real is that in this by yeah, the way was that this. prior yeah, to real. okay okay cool um, <laughs> <laughs> it's only real if it shows up in the podcast uh you were asking about whether this was real and it's almost like perhaps real can it becomes serviceable maybe in the context that we're in now to start thinking of real in terms of proximity to our circumstantial ability to casually construe the roots of something what i mean by that is that um Let's go back to the example of a record. Mm -hmm. We talk so much about aesthetically, or one does, music lovers do, um, audiophiles talk about how it feels good to listen to a record. And it feels good to listen to a record because the technology is so tangibly uh, uh, compassable by other types of experiences that we have as a physical body. You know, we know what it's like to like make some coffee. We know what it's like to like use the grinding machine to like, uh, grind it up, especially yeah. if we're doing it by hand or like mortar and pestle or something like that. That's very like tangible. Grind that shit up, put it in, you know, pour some hot water over it, drip it in there, you know, make right. the cup of coffee. And similarly, even though we couldn't just like look at a record and um, see it, you know, people do talk about how you like under certain circumstances, you can sort of like, you can actually like sense or hear the the waves that are produced by the grooves in a, in a physical record. We can understand it to a significant degree in terms of its tangibility. But that tangibility recedes once we've gone through successive layers of distance where there's a different kind of physical event that's happening when I digitally reproduce something because every single time it's being iterated anew. And then if I add yet another layer of iteration on that and then yet another layer and that layer of iteration now is not done by a human agent but by an agent that is a different kind of agent since it's a composite of a bunch of different nodes and forms of information access, that's to say an AI, then theoretically like a... uh, I guess, I don't know. I was about to say, theoretically, a sort of an omniscient mind could still look at that AI-filtered version of things and trace its way back to the original. But I don't know if that's the case or not. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question of um, of like how abstracted can things get? Because I think, you know, in... 20th century physics, we sort of started with this billiard ball idea that Mm -hmm. if we knew the arrangement of everything at the beginning of the universe, we could fast forward and see how we got here. So if we can rewind back, and then we realize that that doesn't work that way, that it's it's too messy. And so, yeah, you know. um, Yeah, that's why I wanted to stop myself from saying that, because I was realizing that, yeah, that that I think that's precisely what we're now coming to reject, is that the bifurcation or the, 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 uh, the chaos element um, seems to inhere throughout in such a way that something is something happens beyond recall at each moment of splitting and changing yeah. that maybe there is no such omniscience even conceivable. Yeah. At what point can you no longer trace the Doritos back to uh, a corn plant growing in a field? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
But I think, yeah, I think that there's the interesting landscape that we're currently in where we're looking over a cliff that is quite daunting about an increasingly, I'm just going to use this word uh, incorrectly, but like unreal future. Like it feels more and more um, abstracted and strange and overwhelming. And then at the same time, we're already in a world that is so like you said, hyper real and made up of symbols and these abstracted screen experiences rather than these real ones. And then what I think is even more bizarre and probably where you end up with simulations if we think about these, you know, giant galactic civilizations that are supposedly creating them is how that urge for nostalgia becomes simulations. Like people playing Mm -hmm. games like Animal Crossing during covid where i'm in a very weird and unsettling modern reality so i'm gonna go into a digital version of like an anthropomorphic animal medieval village and spend my day fishing and like talking to the grocer yeah 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 Yeah, i um i well was the the, was there a question or just what's the you know i i I agree i agree I, i i see i see the vista toward which you point I, I mean, I think where I'm at with it right now is twofold. And this is just on a personal level. I should also say I'm not, none of this stuff is stuff that I have a great deal of expertise in. And one thing that I lack, and I've been thinking about this as being something rather urgent, is that it's probably a good time for everyone to become very well-versed in two things. Coding and programming languages in general, mm. which I'm not at all. No. <laughs> just because if that's going to be the fabric of your reality know the stitches of it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, imagine a world where that became one of the cornerstones of modern education and uh, nutritive processes on the physical level of your body also became requisite elements of education. In other words, if if everybody could knew the fundamentals of coding and the fundamentals of having a green thumb and being able to grow their own food, Mm -hmm. that would be a world where the relevance of your knowledge and the way that your knowledge is potentially actuated in the real life events and experiences of your life, be they on a computer or off of a computer, it would create a real holism there. Yeah. The reason I bring up those two examples is because I've been trying to do two things with my thinking about this stuff, especially in the moments that I feel just totally terrified. Terrified as a creator in the sense that everything that I've bent my will to learn to make can now be made like that. Yep. I just snapped and terrified as a human in the sense that all of my values feel like they're destabilized by the radical reconstructions of reality that feel imminent, whether we're correct or not. Maybe they won't be, but something is changing. When I feel that terror, I try to do two things. One is to remember that it's still all experience and it all has value. So there's, if I'm already on the layer that I'm on, adding more layers is not an inherent evil. It's still experience and it can be very beautiful. I'm talking to you right Mm -hmm. now. You know, we're not hanging out in physical space. I have friends that I've made that are very close friends now that I've never met in physical space. All these things are good. And even if you're just in a VR where you're moving around, looking at stuff and, you know, having an experience of that kind, that's still an experience in and of itself. Don't devalue it. The way out of the problem, such as there is a problem, is not to devalue the new. I think the solution rather is to lean into valuing that, but then also reclaim layers that have been lost. And when I say layers that have been lost, I mean experiential layers of actually feeding yourself, you know, and again, these are not things that I'm good at, but there's things that I'm starting to value a lot more and trying to associate myself with people who do. If you are able to 
plant seeds in the ground and grow some garden on your roof that provides for even like a third of like your salad intake, you are creating a sense of sort of deep participation in your world. You're, you're connecting levels of the psyche that are buried and, and inaccessible if you don't have that knowledge at all because you're a little cut off from the actual material processes that constitute your being. You'll also be cut off from your community if you never get on the internet at all because that's where your community's going. So the simple answer is like, go both directions. Right. I think there's like a cultural association of there being an opposition between these two things. And as long as there is that opposition, we stand to lose either way, you know, mm -hmm. hurdle headlong into virtual experience. Someone else will figure out where I get my food and I'll get fed through the tube. The reason to not get fed for the tube is not because it's inherently evil to get fed for the tube while you're while you're in your virtual world, but because as an end in itself, as an as a gesture of self-integration and self-awareness and self-rootedness, it's good to also be able to like grow a damn tomato, you know what I mean? And then go chill out and throw virtual tomatoes at the comic you're watching in the VR club, you know? Exactly. Like it's yeah, you know, do do it all. Just on the I guess on the uh, on my underlying assumption is that more experience is good and more well-integrated experience is even better. And I'm defining well-integrated as being uh, aspects of yourself and your world of which you are conscious and for which you have care. Mm -hmm. That's the, you know, coming back to that word. Um, I'll come back to those last two things in a second, but I think you, you use this and I, I, I think as a wizard, I think about games all the time and what are the wider games. And so working in technology working with engineers, people who do know how to code, it's always amazing to just see them do something casually that is like mind-blowing to the average person mm -hmm. where I'm using the Google Chrome browser. It has a thing called developer tools. I don't know if you've used this very often, but you can literally open a side panel that will show you the code of the website you're looking at. Oh, right, right. Yeah, so yeah. you can suddenly be like, oh, here's where this image is looking, or this is the cookies that it's trying to put on. There's this whole other way that you can kind of right-click into something and see beyond the behind the curtain, not that surface level view, but like, what is this made of? What's what's going on? And I think that's like I'll call that right clicking, where it's like you know, let's go into a deeper menu. But there's also this sort of wow. I really like that as a as a term for how to interface with reality in general. And mm -hmm. mind if I write that down, I'll obviously like attribute it where used, but to, to right click, right click everything and everyone. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, What's going on here? And then I think the other one is a double click, which is what you're talking about where you're saying, hey, tomato at the grocery store. Let me double click into this and get some more information. Mm -hmm. What is a tomato? How are tomatoes grown? Mm -hmm. How can yeah. I play the mini game of generate tomato. It's like you can play the regular game where you just yeah. exchange, you know, your tokens for tomatoes, but you can play this mini game where you grow tomatoes and you see that process in an experiential way. And so that is a beautiful quote. I, I that's a beautiful <laughs> quote and sentiment. I'm I'm very I'm indebted to you for that. I like that a lot. Sure. That, that's that's really good. Yeah. The the mini game aspect. I love that terminology. Yeah, it's the exchange of yeah. information. That's that's really good. But I think that's where this idea of, you know, wizardry comes in for me as I'm someone that thought about the world's going to get weirder and having a recognizable sign that my flesh and blood humanness is associated with is valuable. It's, you know, like having a memorable username on, on a social media platform or something that makes you legible in a different way. And mm. for me, that idea of wizardry is about 
right clicking and double clicking. Like if there is a pattern to the world and we're being told this is how the game is played, can we actually go look in the user manual and say, hey, wait, there's a different way we can play this game. This might be more fun yeah. for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of what gets back into those traditional philosophies and things like metaphysics where we're saying, all right, cool, you know, we've learned that the apple falls. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I like that way of thinking about it a lot. I also like the theme of, yeah, some calling card to, or some structure or ritual by which to continuously iterate and remind yourself and remind others of your origin point. You know what I mean? Your, what, what, the, 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 the root of your being, which is physical. Mm -hmm. And the notion is that we have to protect that in the imminent future is scary, but that's just how it is. But it's doable. We, we, we are accustomed as human beings to preserving things through ritual. I mean, this is why, you know, I think I used to think of religion as having ritual as a sort of almost like popularizing apparatus that's attached to a more essential truth. Mm -hmm. Like every religion is, has some insight into the essential nature of things. And then it has tangible specific rituals just as some sort of window dressing to get people into it who aren't like philosophically inclined. Yeah. It's like do the rituals and you'll be all right. Join, you know, stay on the wagon. And I, that's not untrue. But the deeper thing with ritual is that ritual goes deeper than rationality. Like there are places that even like philosophy cannot go because we're not sheerly rational and philosophy, at least in the Western sense, is a rational exercise or an exercise of attempting to categorize and understand reality and, and break it down to its parts uh, discreetly. And there's an, But there's another part of us that doesn't do that at all and just does things. And if one of the things that we, if some of the things that we do uh, just become things that we do just because we just got to keep on doing this mm -hmm. and you can question why we do it, but doesn't mean don't stop doing it. That's what we need in some ways, plausibly, to hold on to that which we're from as we go into the beyond, you know? Mm -hmm. like, like Catholics have their thing about sacraments and unlike other denominations of Christianity, for, interest, for instance, like the, they're very serious about it because a sacrament, they're saying like, no, a real physical thing is taking place here where it's like, mm -hmm. this is actually like, this wine is actually becoming the blood of Jesus. Which literally, dude. Is, literally. Literally. It's not a symbol. It's yeah. not a symbol. It's an event that's happening. And that's a mysterious thing and an irrational thing. Mm -hmm. It's not rational in the sense of, uh, it, we wouldn't put it under the same heading of rational as we would other uh, descriptions of events in the world. But the insight of that, of that leap into the irrational and into the literal is to create a binding that makes it go like this act in this way under these circumstances has a sacredness. It's arbitrary, but it's still full. It's still full of meaning. And so it's those kinds of things that I think will enable us to hold on to where we are. You know what I mean? As we mm -hmm. catapult ourselves into the beyond, because if we only catapult without holding on to anything, yeah. it's, it's like toast. We'll get lost. Know? Yeah. Yeah. We'll get lost. I think getting it's lost like, is need, a big thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I want, so my, my friend Elliot Edge wrote um, a book about essays on virtual reality. And one of the lines that I'm going to misquote here, but do my best to paraphrase is a cathedral is a virtual reality device. Like this is a physical thing that's designed to give you this experience with this other realm of information. And that's, that's also beautiful. I think what you're talking about here with ritual is so powerful because there's two directions that you can kind of go with this. So I'm going to use Buddhism just as the example. But if we think about a Buddhist monk, you're living a very, very simple life. You've taken your material existence to the most repeatable basic thing so you can mm. spend your time basically in virtual reality, tripping out on 
Buddhist theology and thinking about yep. these very, you know, wily abstract phys- um, experiences and meditating and just, you know, getting mm-hmm. down to that simple thing. Somebody else who is a villager nearby and their life is not simple. They're trying to grow food, have a family, deal with their father who's sick, all of those sorts of things. They have a different form of Buddhism, which is taking those rituals into their life to connect with your ancestors and get comfort and strength and access Mm -hmm. these intangible things that you need to pull into your life so that you can function rather than setting your life up so you can just explore those intangible directions. Yeah, that's beautifully put. That 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 hits it on the head. And I think what you're saying here that is um that is so profound and interesting is this idea of like how do we hold on to something as the the dam bursts <laughs> and mm-hmm. the, the levees break and the the tidal wave kind of sweeps mm-hmm. us forward. Um because you were saying a moment ago that more experience is a is a good thing. And I I agree with that to some extent, except I think we're now about to see what happens if we can experience way more than anyone's ever experienced before. And uh, yeah, I might want to walk back. More experience is a good thing because it is certainly it you know qualitatively more um, intense experience, focused experience. Mm-hmm. Difficult to we're we're doing no less in trying to phrase that than like trying to phrase what the highest good is. You know what I mean? That's like not necessarily the easiest task. Maybe it is the primary intangible, but um, but I would say here the transmutation of experience because you and I are taking an hour out of our day to have a conversation. So that's mm-hmm. one hour of my day. That's one hour of your day. We've got two hours of human time that we've just given to create this. Mm-hmm. But everyone who listens to it, assuming they listen to the entire episode, is giving an hour of their time to connect with that experience. So these two hours that we've given multiply out into thousands of hours mm. of, of listening yep. and experience. And sometimes I think that can be very positive. You know, we work hard to create a piece of media that we're hoping resonates and creates more experience in the world. But then sometimes it almost feels like the inverse, like, oh my God, I spent <laughs> months yep. working on something and was yep. that all worth it for an Instagram post? Yeah, experience in uh, experience as a quotient for quality of life or for ethical excellence or what's desirable is not sheerly quantitative. Mm-hmm. This seems clear, not just from the ways in which patently we waste a lot of our time by creating or consuming too much content that we don't mm-hmm. get meaningfully added to by, but even just our bodies. Our bodies are not like, don't become more excellent by adding more to ourselves indiscriminately, right, you know, yeah. by becoming like physically larger. Mm-hmm. Our bodies also have mechanisms for excising certain parts of themselves in order to uh, remain in a state of equipoise and equilibrium. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, certainly piling on more experience isn't just full stop the thing to advocate, I don't think. Yeah. A lot of my my own thematization of the word experience comes a lot from... Alfred North Whitehead, do you know Whitehead at all? I know, I know Whitehead and I've had, I've read Whitehead by proxy because reading Whitehead (laughs) firsthand is a little bit uh, more uh, experience than I've been willing to commit to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not a, not a casual investment. Well, process and reality is not to be casually jumped into, but there's another one called Adventures of Ideas Mm -hmm. that I very often uh, suggest folks read that are interested in these kinds of things because 
It's more accessible. Okay. In any case, plus the name Adventures of Ideas. Such it's a, a great idea. Name. That's a great name, yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the point is that everything is the Adventures of Ideas because he is, um, his thought is describable by the word panpsychism. Panpsychism is the notion that experience or subjectivity or mm-hmm. the, the, the status of being an I that's feeling something is something that belongs to all of reality. All yeah. of matter has this going on. And so really everything is like these nested series of experiencing nodes and it's nodes within nodes within nodes or like little, little pockets within pockets or another word for it in another um, philosophical tradition is a holon. A holon is something that's simultaneously a part and a whole mm-hmm. and the individual parts are feeling and have their own agency and desire and they can either lean into being part of the whole or they can fuck around with shit. And that's sort of how things are structured. So if we think of things that way, like a cell, a cell has a sphere of agency that is not necessarily exhausted by describing mechanically what it does. It can choose to be part of things or not. And most of our cells do. When they don't, they go the other way. And then that's a cell that becomes a cancer. And so similarly with our adding of experience, we ask, you know, is this cancerous in nature? And is this inducing me to be cancerous in my behavior? That's a very heavy way to put it, obviously, and a very like mm-hmm. loaded way to put it. But I just mean it to illustrate sort of in a parabolistic type of way, what's at stake maybe in terms of how I think of it. Like we are a little node of experience and we can be enriched, but that enriching doesn't always come in the form of adding. Sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it comes in the form of subtracting. Like I'm going to stop reading this book or I'm going to stop listening to this podcast. Yeah. Just click it right now. That's the end. Uh, you know, or I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cut off this stream of information because that actually, that cutting off adds to me, you know, Mm -hmm. we are, we are enriched both by additive and subtractive gestures, I guess. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think what's so fascinating here is that we have an experience that as humans, we're very obsessed with, and, you know, philosophy is all about thinking about what is this experience and kind of Mm -hmm. analyzing it. But if we, you know, let's look at an animal and just imagine that the animal is just having one real-time experience. Let's just pretend it doesn't have memory and it's just kind of moving along and it's experiencing what's ever in the moment. Mm -hmm. Then we can think about our human experience where we're moving along, but we've got this little pack of experience that we call memory, and we can throw that in front of our track at any time to say, ah, yeah. I had pizza last week and I'm going to remember that now and kind of lay that old experience on my track in front of me. Yeah. But we generally don't have new experiences in the past. We only have them as we move into them. But one of the things with virtual reality, you know, you see this idea kind of in stuff like the movie Total Recall. Um, I saw this presented best in this book called uh, Accelerando by Charles Strauss. But at a certain point, if you can have a virtual self that is a simulation of your being that can run through an experience, and then later you can just add that in, you know, to your memory bag, Mm -hmm. suddenly you have this very different nonlinear way of experiencing where you can say, ah, you know, what would it be like if I had grown up in China instead of the US? Let's run a simulation on that and then boot that in. And now I have these weird dual memories of growing up as I did in the US, as well as growing up in China, as well as anymore. And you can start to think about this editable experience of saying, okay, which of the experiences that I have are good? Which ones do I want to delete because they're slowing down my computer or it's a broken file? And then you have this very transformed um, kind of consciousness, which we're moving closer towards. And I think is part of that, uh, that daunting fear that we all are starting to fear, (laughs) feel more and more this year. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's, (laughs) that's quite a thought. 
let's switch gears uh, and talk about some of the ethics, though, because I think that is... Okay, cool. Um, I mean, we've kind of been crossing into that territory a little bit even. We've crossed inherently. it into it uh, to some extent, but I, I think just for you, like we talked about earlier, not, you know, how do you feel like in your current life, these thoughts are connecting with your material experience of reality and care? Where do you see these junctures? Um, good question. I, on a very personal level, I've created a personal economy in terms of my, um, lifestyle and my income. Economy literally means management of the house or like mm -hmm. the rules of the house. The eco means home yeah. or house and my little life world economically has become almost completely dependent on and in reference to making videos on the computer here in this lightless basement and mm -hmm. getting paid to do that. And I used to teach um, in person and that stopped around the pandemic. And that's when I shifted gears or began to shift gears to doing this. Used to play a lot more shows, but I don't as often anymore just because they're not as lucrative for me, at mm -hmm. least right now, not right now. So since that's the case, I've been really examining like, okay, this is in a way exactly what I asked for. And there's something very liberating about it. I'm making a living off of my art, like in a really unlooked for, but a very successful way for the moment, knock mm -hmm. on wood, you know, but I also do feel like I've created an imbalance. And so I've been trying to examine not just how to fix that imbalance. Cause the easy question is like, Oh, make sure you go hang out with people a lot. And like, yeah, maybe do some like gardening on the side as well. And like, make mm -hmm. sure you go work out. Those are all true. But then examining like, but why, why shouldn't this be sufficient? Because I'm well fed and I do get enough light and I do see people and I have people that I love and I make love and stuff like yeah. this and all these things that are good. And what is the source? And I think it, it goes back the source of the discomfort. The discomfort, I think, goes back to that same thing that I was talking about. It's like, if everything is homes within homes, if my physical building here is a little home and the planet is a little home and then all over the planet now, there's these other homes that are simultaneously within and maybe in some ways bigger than the place that they reside physically on that level of reality. Yeah. The different virtual worlds we enter. If that's the case, you got to take care of all the ones that you're in if you want all the ones you're in to be healthy and to be mm -hmm. healthy for you. Don't shit on your uh, discord that you're a part of and like be a jackass there. And don't uh, shit on the street that you live on either, like literally, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like take care of it. And I think I've set up a life for myself where even though I'm thematizing the engagement with community on the material level of like where food comes from and stuff like that, I'm eager for more of that. Yeah. And there's a community garden that's opening close to me that I want to get more involved in, which, you know, ironically so far I've mostly been involved on the level of Zoom meetings, but that's the kind of thing that I want to cultivate. Although precisely in that irony is like the the difficulty and the slippage in my life right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That I think what you're saying here is in one sense, especially like it sounds like, you know, with the pandemic, you experienced what a lot of us experienced where there was a very quick shift from ah, I go to an office and sit in meetings to I sit on Zoom and I'm in meetings or I used to play live shows and teach in front of people. Now I musically teach people via videos that I spend time moving around on a computer yeah. screen and, yeah. and yeah, editing yeah. and filming and all of that kind of stuff in this uh, windowless basement that's full of artificial light. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so then, yeah, I think there's something about scale in all of that because we can't really kind of focus, I guess, on all of those layers all at once. And like when you're going to the grocery store, you're worried about the macro object of tomato, not 
the cells of the tomato. That would be right. too microscopic, too zoomed in to care about. But I think a lot of us experience anxiety that's on a different scale than our lived reality. So even though, like you're saying, hey, I'm well-fed, I'm fine, I'm you know, not materially affected by this, I'm spending all of my focus on global news that is mm-hmm. upsetting and anxiety-provoking and just worrying about that where I can't you know, become a Godzilla and operate at that larger scale of reality all of a sudden. Yes, I'm glad you brought up scale because yeah, that's that that maybe is a quicker, that's a more efficient way of articulating. I think something that my mind has been grasping for is like consider scale. Yeah, precisely. In the same way that when you're eating your food, it's relevant to consider how it breaks down cellularly, mm-hmm. uh, but not immediately relevant to slicing the tomato, making the salad, enjoying the tomato, or growing it for that matter necessarily. Mm-hmm. Similarly. The other processes that we engage in and to which we contribute with our own lives and time, the more we can be engaged in those things that we can understand where we are in the um, loop of their effectiveness and the loop of their um, significance, the more happy we'll be, you know, because mm-hmm. we're, we're not we're not all running for president, you know, yeah. and it really I want a world where it matters less whom we elect president and more what communities were plugged into both virtual and base layer, you know, um, because those, that's what immediately matters. Uh, you know, if, if we keep on, if we, if we were to start having conversations once a month or something like that, you are more significant to me than somebody that I don't see physically that often. Mm-hmm. And somebody that I, that is just like a, you know, a face on the television screen. The neighbor that you don't know their name is next to you in proximity, but not in intimacy compared to the, partner that you're dating that lives on the other side of the world. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's an interesting idea with like um, nutrition here. Um, I don't remember, this is one of those, you know, facts that is fuzzy in my brain and I read from something forever ago. So, you know, caveat. But I remember reading something about like nitrogen content in food and that at some point with, you know, the ecological changes that could start dropping in this way. And so we would have food that would look like food, but ultimately it's not nourishing your body in the way that you would need it to. So, you know, people would be eating plenty, quote unquote, but then experiencing malnutrition. And I wonder if that's what we've ended up doing with this kind of stimulated stuff where I think, you know, the difference between pornography and sex, you know, to one extent, one sort of a simulation of the other, but mm-hmm. there's a nutritional value that you don't get from the simulated version. If you only eat food in Animal Crossing, you will starve to death. Yeah. If you don't have, you know, touch community connection, if your community is arguing with, uh, you know, people you went to high school with on Facebook, that's different than being in the community garden with people and thinking about the sort of nutrient content of these experiences. Um, yeah to help differentiate between, you know, what feels meaningful and substantial and what is a simulation of relaxation that doesn't relax you, a simulation of sociality that doesn't build friendships that you can rely on if you need something. It makes me think about how value is in a way kind of paradoxical because it's difficult, especially probably in the language of our, or in the context of our economic imagination with how the world is structured economically Mm-hmm. here, you know, at least in the United States. Uh, we, I think when we hear the word value, the mind goes to like value for, like value, instrumental value. Right. Like what something can do for you or for something else mm-hmm. uh, as a means to an end is what defines value. But the most 
powerful forms of value or the most powerful value experiences are ones where the thing in question or the person in question doesn't do anything for you at all. Mm-hmm. And then paradoxically also does do something for you, but your capacity to value it is predicated on not thematizing that so much as them as an end in themselves. And that's the kind of tomato relationship that I mean. Here's what I mean. Mm-hmm. The, the, when we start to instrumentalize a tomato to be like, let's get the maximum possible nutritional value out of this mm-hmm. at the least possible expense so that we can grow the most amount of tomatoes. What we've done is not immediately jump straight to making tomatoes that are bad for us, although that might be a corollary sometimes accidentally of what we've done, um, at, you know, just in the way things have turned out. But I don't think that's inherently wrong on any other level except that that dishonors the tomato. The tomato's giving us a gift mm-hmm. and we think of the tomato in the logic of gift, not the logic of tool. Right. And the same is true for our interactions with one another and the kind of content that we bombard one another with. I mean, that's that's kind of been... As in addressing questions of like, oh, there's so much going on, maybe I want more silence. Why would I be breaking the silence as well with more stuff to offer people? And so my litmus is, what I've tried to have it be is, is the thing that I'm posting right now a gift? Is it in the logic mm. of gift of like, here, this is meant to live for its own sake. This is a homegrown tomato for you. Mm-hmm. And you can either take it or leave it, but there it be. I'm not trying to give you any factory tomato content that just is there because it's quick and because it gets an idea across uh, aptly, but I'm giving it to you because it lives in and of itself, or it's the document of something that lives, a song or an idea or something like that, which is different, subtly different, but importantly different, I think, than what's the quickest and most efficient way I can use this medium or this tool to get an idea across, because that becomes factory shit, which honestly, and to me, that's the direction. This has been a big conflict for me as a creator recently, because, you know, I'm not exactly... I've had little spurts of growth in the past like, you know, year or so um, of audience, but it doesn't happen automatically and it doesn't happen with wild consistency. And sometimes when I look at things that do grow, they're things that instrumentalize the medium to the max. Least possible amount of effort on the part of the creator, least possible amount of uh, aesthetic care relative to efficiency of transmission. And it's just like, here's the idea. And there's an explosion of online learning happening, but it's all instrumental knowledge. It's all, how can I optimize my life? How can I get better at X, Y, or Z? How can I, with the greatest possible efficiency, increase, you know what I mean? Whereas that's something qualitatively different than content of care, you know what I mean? Or like calm tent, as sometimes call it. Even if it's not aesthetically calm, it's like meant to be artisanal, you know what I mean? It's like farmer's market style stuff. And obviously determining the line between those things is very arbitrary, but I've been thinking about it in those terms. Let me let me see if I can kind of unwrap what you've just said because I think there's so much there. But just going back to this idea of value, if my house catches fire, I could think about value in three ways. I could say, what's the most quote-unquote valuable object? And there's the Ming vase that's worth thousands of dollars. Yep. So that's valuable, but it's not even that useful. It's just a, a, a thing that our culture has agreed on has value. So that's one. Then there's my my laptop. That's the most valuable thing I own because it does stuff for me. It is the tool that is the most useful. And so then I can use it like a tool. But then there's something that has value because it is a gift my dead mother gave me or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it is not the most useful tool. Nobody else would perceive that value, but I project value onto it I care about it mm-hmm. in a way that is meaningful to me. It's about my relationship. Yeah. And I feel like what you were saying is that you're trying to think about your creative output as like 
a gift. If I, you know, if if Nathan is a tree, this is the fruit that I grow. This is how mm-hmm. my experience produces things that fall and hopefully some animal or YouTuber, you know, eats them up and gets some value from it. And that you're seeing how social media and this thing that we're told all the time that is, you know, like if you, <laughs> if you right click and you look at the fabric of like, you know, what's underneath that ad message, kind of like the, um, the glasses that he puts on and um, they live and he sees the obey signs everywhere. It's that we're being told that we need to scale and grow to be valuable. Like mm-hmm. your audience needs to increase your clicks per video. All of that needs to go up and you see other people doing that. And it's this question of, like you're the organic farmer and you're looking at your neighbor's big tomatoes and you're saying, do I switch to the non-organic yeah. fertilizer yeah, yeah. to grow the bigger tomatoes or is that not the value that I have to offer? Is that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm glad, I'm glad you like pulled it back to like the real tangible. I'm glad we landed on that analogy because I hadn't thought of it that way before um, until I was saying it just now. I'm glad you summarized it because I like the idea of like being an organic content creator. Like what is that? What does that mean? That's like an interesting thing to explore as a meta level thematization of like different types of things you can do with, you know, being a creator, whether it's professional or not, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's like the other day, my girlfriend showed me this. Sometimes she falls asleep with these videos. This guy just puts a video camera in front of a fan. Like Mm. it's like, he's like a fan enthusiast. He's like a fan fan. And he'll just turn on the camera for like seven hours. It's like seven hours of fan. And it's partly for the noise of like, you know, fall, white noise to fall asleep yeah. to. But it's not just that because if it was just that, it would have some cheesy like canned photo back, background or of something. It would be yeah, made with yeah. a synth. But this guy loves fans. <laughs> like he loves fans. And a fan is a little mechanical thing, but he loves it. And you can love even your mechanical things. That's another, it's another related point, looping it back into the, the, the physical sphere mm-hmm. um, relative to how we usually use that term. Um, like our phones, like you can love the shit out of your phone. And I think it's good too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The other day I was in a rage and it, it was sort of phone induced cause like some drama went down in my life and I was so mad that I, I wrecked my phone. I had it, the new iPhone. I hadn't even paid it off. I destroyed it on purpose. I murdered it. It felt like a murder. Yeah. I was killing myself and killing the other because it's my access point And I destroyed that thing. And I went back to my old one, which is an iPhone eight. And I was like, oh, yeah, I loved you and I still love you. And I'm sad that I ever broke up with you. And I felt guilty for the murder. But also, like, I was like, that's important to note that that was an object I didn't love. I didn't Mm -hmm. love it. And you were talking about saving your laptop. I don't think you just save it because it is the fulcrum of all of your activities in this world. It is a noble soldier. You know what I mean? It's your buddy. Mm -hmm. It's your buddy. Yeah. It's not autonomous, you know what I mean? But it's still your buddy. It's like in the same way, and you, and I think also even, I take it a step further and say, it's not just that you're projecting value onto it, but rather by that very projection, it is projecting back. Like that's the mystical leap that I think like, you know, a panpsychist way of thinking takes. Yeah. Like the computer too is a locus of experience that has a subjectivity yeah. And you have contributed to that with your actions that you take on it, but also in some way that's inaccessible to us, it has its own interiority, you know, and the fact that we can't access it doesn't delimit its significance. It calls us to responsibility mm-hmm. the same way the strangeness of some random person you meet calls you to responsibility by virtue of their very foreignness and inaccessibility. But here's the interesting thing about this example you just gave is 
my physical computer, the one that I am looking at right now and touching and mm-hmm. you know carry around and do all my work on, I had a computer stolen a couple years ago and I bought a new computer. Mm-hmm. So when I so when I got my new computer and I logged in with my iCloud ID, my desktop was the same, my files were the same, everything that I was using was suddenly in that new physical shell. And it's the same, you know, with phones. Like it used to be like, oh, I lost my phone. There goes my contacts, my photos, mm-hmm. everything. Now you can switch phones and it's pretty seamless. Like you can get a new phone tomorrow and that abstracted cloud of information that you care about is more or less the same. Maybe the size of the screen and the quality of the camera changes, but the physicalness of the phone has become so much more secondary. Mm. Yes. However, not however, but just to add to that, it, that does complicate the point that I was making, but I think in a way it just illustrates another angle of it in the sense that maybe it's possible soon for us to transfer our own consciousness completely out of our bodies and in a, well, you know, we don't need to unpack what that means in terms of the like continuity of what our consciousness is. I don't want to get into the weeds of that right now, but the point is like you could keep on experiencing maybe and, you know, be like, uh, you know, in a, in a synthetic body or whatever on, or just in the metaverse, what have you. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you should trash your own body. It's like, it's like the classic like parent and kid thing. It's like, yeah, we could get you another one, but we don't have to. Mm -hmm. Like I always think about this, or I've been thinking about this recently in reference to um, aluminum cans and recyclable receptacles. Yeah. Because I'm a big advocate for like, you know, just bring your cup with you when you go get it filled. And it's not just because, but and sometimes people are like, well, um, first of all, a lot of that's recyclable. And then second of all, uh, even if it's plastic, we've got like our plastic eating worms that they've like mm-hmm. developed now. So it's no problem. That's awesome that we've done that. And those are great backup technologies to have. But the holism to be desired is one where we love the thing itself in the first place anyway, mm-hmm. because it just, we're talking about cutting things out can be a form of intensifying and like enriching experience. That's an example of that. It's like you gain more by just loving the thing for its own sake, in addition to its instrumental value, you know, and having a relationship with it. Well, I think the, uh, you know, please, please correct me if I'm off base here, but I think the, the delta between these two things that we're discussing brings us back to that idea of ritual. If you have a shrine where you go and commune with the ancestor gods and various things mm-hmm. um, near your house, and it burns down, your god is not dead, but your Correct. shrine has burned down, which is a yeah. tragedy because you which is care a about that shrine. Yeah, you don't yeah, go, yeah. oh, whatever, yeah. let me call yeah. Shrines Are Us and get another shrine sent out here, no big whoop. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about is even if the things that we care about are more abstracted, the ones that are our neighbors and friends, and I'm not just saying humans, but the objects, the things that are around us that are the portals for them, having that relationship is a way to fight back against this thing that culture pushes us towards where everything's ephemeral. Instead of that favorite t-shirt, you get a new t-shirt and the mailbox t-shirt club every month. And so who are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, your wardrobe changes constantly. If your computer, your phone, if everything around you is different every day. Exactly. Yeah. Arbitrary limitation and ritualistic iteration of those arbitrary limitations is the foundation for meaning and that for the sake of which we come up with rules and traditions and ideas and forms of experience that are transcendent of that foundation. That was a complex sentence. What I mean by it is this. 
in the Ark of the Covenant, when God gives instructions to the Israelites to like, here's how to build it. The thing that matters most is the covenant itself, the covenant mm-hmm. between God and the people. The fancy Ark is wildly arbitrary and weird to read about as like yeah. a, you know, non-Jew, like thousands of years later, uh, or for anybody for that matter. It's like really specific. Yeah. But the specificity is the beauty. The 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 finite contains the infinity. You don't go searching for infinity in the beyond because you'd go endlessly in any direction. But the finite is what contains like all of the meaning. And so that it doesn't exhaust the meaning. The meaning beautifully transcends it. This is this is where information or you know, call it spirit or experience does transcend the vessels in which it resides. But that's all the more reason to take care of the vessel. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in like, you know, religious doctrines of detached action or um, of uh, inaction or of like, or like the the Christian notion of like, it's by faith and not by works that you're justified. In all of those, it doesn't mean don't do the works. It means as you do them, realize that the physical body you're doing the works with and that for which you're doing the works are ephemeral and they'll pass away. You're, 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 you're saved anyway. It's, it's all one thing. It's all just one, you know, ultimate reality, but play, play through it and play yeah. with care. You know, like it's, it's the game gets ruined. If you, instead of playing by the rules of the game, which are there to make it fun, that's mm-hmm. when, a, when you get a board game, the rules are there to make it fun. The rules of a game are there to make it fun. And so if you flagrantly just like throw your game pieces all over the place, you know what I mean? Or tear up the monopoly money. You're not improving the game, you know what yeah. I mean? Yes, you can just get more. Yes, it's just Monopoly money. That is true. Mm-hmm. But you are not improving the quality of the game by disrespecting the objects that constitute it, you know? Because you too are such an object, you know? Yeah. I think um, this makes me think of in the world of games, there's a game like Warhammer 40K where it's kind of about buying the different pieces. And if you buy mm-hmm. the pieces with your real material money, you get different powers in the game. So it becomes kind of a spending game mm-hmm. of, can I buy these pieces? And the pieces are the thing. Um, and then you could think about Monopoly where you've lost all the pieces and you're saying, eh, whatever, we're going to play with some stuff in the junk mm-hmm. drawer. So my you know, storage key is now the top hat, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And yeah. you have this indifference to it. And then I think what we're talking about is playing D&D where you could use whatever figurine but the fact that you went to the hobby store, you bought a figurine that you yeah. thought was really cool, and then you painted it and you made it your yeah. own is understanding, yeah, that you know the the piece doesn't give me any superpowers. Like it doesn't change the game. But because I made a piece that I value and I care about, it feels more fun to go over to mm-hmm. play d and d at my buddy's house with my cool figurine that I've put mm-hmm. care into, yeah. and and I guess, yeah, and two things. One, People paint their Warhammer pieces too, right? My brother yes, used to play. yes. I was just using, uh, no offense yeah, yeah, to the Warhammer I, listeners <laughs> out there. Don't send me like angry letters. 50% of your audience. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and, and then additionally, in the same way that I wanted to push a little farther when you were saying that you projected affection onto like your, uh, um, like your, your grandma's like heirlooms or something mm-hmm. like that, um, I would say it push a little farther in the sense that you had said, what was it that you said about Oh, that the piece doesn't give you any superpowers. Mm-hmm. It does. Your superpowers reside in the paradox of transcending even your own rational understanding of the world into loving something else than yes. you, be it a aggregate of physical matter or an equally crazy, perhaps crazier undertaking of loving another human mm-hmm. who is a completely unknowable fucking chaos. Yeah. 
like, you know, tire fire of a, of a phenomenon in the world, but you love them anyway. You know what I mean? All of these things being microcosms for loving the big other or the ultimate other, which is, you know, call it God or call it the one or the, you know, the, the I, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. All of these are leaps, you know, but, but it's like, uh, it is a leap. It's a leap beyond the rational. And I think in that leap, you do obtain your superpower. Like, mm-hmm. like the world becomes miraculous. It becomes miraculous in the sense that has come down to us in whatever way they're true of the tradition of miracles in various religions and experientially where it's like suddenly the world sparkles with objects of care and it sparkles with delight and love and significance. You know what I mean? Even when you're just getting your coffee filled at the bodega, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So that brings us to the final portion of this podcast where we come up with a spell that the listeners can do to bring some version of what we've been talking about into their lives. And the goal here is to make it very small and manageable so that people will actually do it, yet powerful and meaningful so it doesn't feel like just some arbitrary chore that two people on a podcast told you to do. Interesting. Can you give me examples of past spells or would that that, uh, be too like determining of it? It would be too determining, and that's my excuse for having a bad memory and not <laughs> being able to come up with any examples on the spot. Well, so like it's like a sequence of words or something? Well, no, 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 no. So it's 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 not like a, although we occasionally get those, but it's more like if someone is listening to this and going, wow, this is such a cool idea, like mind blown, like I'm writing notes, like tomato, circle it, like, okay, this is great. <laughs> um, what is some... Thing that you would just give as a little instruction for that person to say, hey, you know, we've been talking about this in abstract ways with D&D pieces and yada, yada. Mm-hmm, Here's mm-hmm. something that you can go do that is meaningful. Like you've brought up the reusable cup, you know, mm. not just going out and then buying yet another consumer good of a thermos that is now your thing, but like going and finding a used one and doing something that would make that a meaningful relationship that you have with that. So then whenever you're going to the store and saying, hey, don't put the coffee in that styrofoam cup, put it in here that you're reminded of this conversation, this magic. Is that making sense? Yeah, it does. It does. The thing that I have the first impulse to suggest is really no different than like the Marie Kondo thing about like how you're supposed to like decide to clean your room about like, does mm-hmm. this, what's her, what's, you know, familiar with her? Like her, yeah, uh, yeah. What, throw what, everything what is, away. The magic yeah. of tidying up. Yeah, yeah. And then what's her, she has like a formulaic phrase, which, oh, does it spark joy? Does it spark joy? Yeah. Which I like, but I think it can go deeper than that. I think it's simpler than that, but also more inclusive than that. It's like, do I love this? But apply, do I love this to every object you encounter? Physical objects, do I love this as you're acquiring it? Objects of content as you scroll through them, Mm. do I love this? Thoughts as they occur to you. Do I love this? And in that question is maybe everything you need to know about how you should be relating to that thing, you know? And I'm going to put that in a box that will be bigger on the inside than outside. But I'd say to do this spell, pick a day in advance where you're saying, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to ask myself this this question that Nathan has given us of, do I love this? And I think that's a beautiful way to think about it of, you know, Do I love the TV show that I'm going to watch? Do I love the meal that I'm about to eat? Do I love the people I'm about to spend time with? And seeing how we uh, perceive that value and it transcends material and immaterial objects. Beautiful. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Devin. All right, friends. 
For more of Nathanology's immaculate rhyming magic, check him out on YouTube at youtube.com slash Nathanology or on social media at Nathanology underscore. Uh, I do not understand how he makes such incredibly edited videos at such an amazing rate. It is absolutely mind boggling. I struggle to just get out a audio only podcast. Uh, and he's over here churning out just professional, incredible videos. It's really, it's really, really impressive stuff. Uh, but Hey, Let's not be too down on the audio magic that we're weaving together as wizards around the world. If you want to participate in the ritual more fully or just help me uh, buy a burrito so I can stay fed, uh, check out patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where you can join the podcast community for just $4.20. And that makes me able to share this magic with you. Yada, yada, you get how capitalism works. But we're trying to do capitalism in a cooler, more community-based way. So if you've got $4.20 just jingling around in your pocket and you think it would be nice to help a wizard do nice things, patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. And now I know I promise this at the top and I'm not going to delay any longer. Here is the amazing... This podcast is a ritual freestyle courtesy of Nathanology featuring Devin the Rappin' Wizard. I love it. Well, you got a beat. All right, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you hear it good? Is there a we good We can balance? hear it good. We're, we're uh, loud and clear. All right. Shout out to this podcast as a ritual. Shout out to Devin Person. My name is Nathan, a.k.a. Nathanology. Rocking it free in the way that it's gotta be. I used to teach college, see, but then I had to go in and switch it. I go ahead and spit it. I'm just trying to look at the finite and see that it contains the infinite. Yeah, that's the way that I came to rap this. Because speaking in rhyme is related to magical practice. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the way that we're rocking. I'm balling with the magic like my name was Magic Johnson. Either that or Detlef off of the top with the death shit I'm just trying to do my thing and go ahead and hit my breath hits I'm fresher than a breath mint that's the way the direct kids yeah is he the dopest ever on the microphone yes I reckon he is mm, yeah just rocking out it's Devin and Nathan am I on my way to heaven am I living in a simulation is this the real thing or is this an alternate version it's Nathanology rocking out with Devin person he's a very good person he also happens to be a wizard I'm just shooting these rhymes straight out of my gizzard I'm an off the top spitter making it hot in the winter I'm just doing my rhymes off of the top as I sit here, yeah. Fuck all these rappers with all of their bombast. They should just relax and put on their headphones and hear this podcast, yeah. Because a lot of them are so pitiful. They should realize that every podcast is a ritual. Let me just spit it full and contain it within my brain. I'm just trying to do my thing. I'm flowing like a sand grain through the hourglass for hours with the repast and the ill spits. All right, Devin, I want to hear some of your shit. Oh shit, I've gotta get on the mic I'm gonna try my best and you can see if you like What I've gotta say today with Nathanology He's spitting rhymes, dropping fruit like a tree He makes history clear, accessible I don't even know if my head is full Cause my heart is feeling the rhymes we're hearing And now pretty soon like a wizard disappearing Appearing, appearing with the rap He's coming off at the top like Gandalf's cap That's a wizard that can spit, uh It's Robert Pass, rocking out with Devin Ritual Podcast Alright, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> That yeah. was fun Yeah, yeah, not bad not, That was good Yeah, you're good You jumped in there beautifully